My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at BroBible.com. Today, as always, I am joined by my co-host, Kate Onder, who you could find writing about video games at comicbook.com. And today we are discussing the initial reactions, well, at least mine, to season two of Loki. I saw four of the six, tired of the six thing, but... But the four were good, uh, and then we will be breaking down and reviewing Gareth Edwards, the creator. Now, I, like I just said, I've seen the first four, Kate did not, so I'm just going to fire off kind of my... Well, actually, you know what, Kate, you tweeted this summer in terms of Soka, but I think it largely applies to the sort of Disney Plus structure as a whole, that you felt unshackled and that you don't, and that you no longer feel the need to watch these shows. How do you feel about season two of this show as it's now two days away? Uh, it's not going on me. Didn't even realize it was coming out this soon. I don't care. I'm going to watch it uh, because you seem very excited about it. And so I'd like to talk with you about it. Um, and even so, if I so if you weren't on this podcast, you would not watch it. I think it would totally depend on like if everyone was saying, like, you guys should watch this. This is, I think, I think we're back, then maybe I'd probably come back to it, but I don't know. I mean, I didn't really care for the first season as much as you guys did. Mm, You guys are very high on it, so I I just didn't care. I don't know. Okay, I I feel weird, I feel out like an outlier, and I don't know. So, are you familiar with the work of? Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. They did that. They did that uh, Netflix show Archive 81. They did that movie Synchronic. They 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 do very heavy, dense sci-fi. So to to me, they are a perfect fit for this show. And I think that that is sort of the highlight of this, that it reminds us that what makes the MCU tick is and I feel like it's something that they've gotten away from where they sort of go for a director for higher vibe. For example, Sean Levy doing Deadpool 3. <laughs> there is nothing from Sean Levy's career, who I think is a populist and largely disrespected, but very competent filmmaker. But there is nothing uh, in his previous career that says, well, this guy should direct Deadpool 3, the first <laughs> ever R-rated MCU film. But Loki seems to understand that what you need to do is marry a, a character and creators who understand their tone. So taking Benson and Moorhead, who are like the ultimate melt-your-brain sci-fi guys, and to give them this show... It's just such a perfect blend because Loki's journey feels at the same time, both like wildly absurd, yet deeply important. His world feels gonzo and bizarre, yet felt and real. So I think that that ultimately makes it feel like a real show with actual style and actual substance and actual tone and actual ideas that makes it largely unique to the MCU outside of what James Gunn has done. Like you can... so. I don't think that this is quote unquote as epic or as sprawling as season one. I don't think that this is one of the best things that Marvel has ever done. But what I do think is it is, it's trying to tell its own story. I understand that Kang and Victor Timely are inherently the quote unquote MCU's next big bad, which 
the Jonathan major stuff is a different podcast for a different day. But when you throw this show on, it doesn't feel like a, oh, this is an MCU show. This feels like a, oh, Loki is its own show. It's got its own vibe. And if you enjoy that vibe, I think it's a win. And I will just say that since we're in this era of like MCU multiversal storytelling and like time distortion and reality themes, what it understands more so than No Way Home and Doctor Strange 2, which I both really like, but I think are flawed, and Ant-Man 3, which flat out sucks, is that it has like a deep understanding of like the multiverse and time are like awe-inspiring and cool, but at the end of the day, they're actually both deeply terrifying. And that is sort of the lifeblood of the show. And that is what I like about it because that's one of those things that I think about all, like basically all the time uh, in a comic book film and just a general life context. It's just the way the time is perceived and understood and and how we we have such a little um, grasp of both of those things. So I, I, I think that that show excels in that. The chemistry between its leads, Hiddleston, Owen Wilson, Gugu Mbatha-Raw, Jonathan Majors, Sophia Di Martino, K. Hugh Kwan is fits the tone of this series like a glove. I think all that stuff works. So bottom line is that I think that this is sort of the nexus point to use a Loki pun of of an MCU show, just con- an MCU product finding that right balance of doing its own thing, but fitting into the larger picture, which I think is what a lot of the previous films and shows have struggled with. That's exciting because as you pointed out on Twitter, um, this is the first MCU project that doesn't have reshoots. And while I don't necessarily think mm. reshoots are and always And that's inherent- what I say and then quickly, Kate, that's what I say when it feels like it's got its own style and substance and tone. Like, you could tell these yeah. creators had an idea, they filmed it, they shot it, done. Yeah, exactly what I was going to say. Like, I'm not uh, inherently against the idea of reshoots if they're necessary. You know, sometimes people realize they need to go back and add things, but like, that shows that no one at Marvel was like, you guys need to go on and, and do this. Sorry, you got to go back and you got to do this because we ha- we have something part of the larger picture you need to put in there. This was a group of people who got to go in and, and really they got to cook. And that's what we've been asking <laughs> for. So um, that's great to right, hear. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to say, even though the first season of Loki didn't blow me away like some other people, it is the most interesting of the Marvel concepts and i'm excited I think to you weirdly it. might like season two better because it's a bit more real then okay cool um uh some someone who was on the same page as me was like i like the season two more because it's more like fast-paced frenetic it's got hmm. a rhythm to it and so yeah whereas like season one they're going to this world and this timeline and it's very grand scale hmm. season two is more of a it's like a group trying to fix a massive problem. And I think that that has a good and bad side to it. The good side is that it it takes what is a massive idea of like collapsing timelines and focuses mm-hmm. in on like how seven people are trying to fix this huge problem. <laughs> but at the same time, it doesn't have that same sort of grandiose scale of season one where it's like, 
we're going to arrive at the end of time and meet the villain, you know, yeah. like, they, this, so I think that that's where of a bit of the disconnect is coming in where it's like, sure. it doesn't feel as scope heavy as season one did, but it also feels like there are multiple times where I, my jaw dropped and I was like, holy shit. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> I, and that is, is kind of what I want. There is a moment at the end of, so the last one that they sent out to journalists like me, you could see why that's where they stopped. It's like, oh, oh okay. And, and and so I think that episodes one through two were really strong. And then I think three and four slow down and contain themselves a bit. But it all the, like I said, the ideas and the tone and the look are all so singular that you're allowed to take a breath and just enjoy this world and not have to worry about the sort of cataclysmic consequences of it while all of that stuff still exists in the background. Yeah, I mean, like, I was very interested in where they left season one. Like, even though the rest mm. of it wasn't, like, grabbing me, I was like, wait, hang on. Because the idea of Loki as a show, right, was this character has been isolated. He's been picked out of his world and put into this other weird thing going on. And now he's been even further isolated, right? Like he's been isolated to like the, the 10th power. Like it's crazy yeah, exactly. where they have put him. So I'm curious yeah. to see how they get him out of that. What goes on with Kang. I'm interested to see what they do with Jonathan Majors because that's a whole thing in itself. Like I'm yeah. just curious about this I entire mean, project. Yeah. And we'll talk about that more when we, break it down later sure. this week so make sure to tune back in for that all right let's take a quick break and when we come back we will be reviewing gareth edwards the creator this episode is brought to you by shopify forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to shopify the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell with Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, and we are back. We are talking about Gareth Edwards, the creator. It is his first film since 2016's Rogue One. So that is where I want to start, Kate. I am on record ad nauseum about how I feel about Rogue One. I think Godzilla is sort of a masterful tone piece. And I think that those films are interesting in terms of, I think Godzilla's first act is its best. And I think Rogue One's third act is its best. And they mm. both succeed at different things. But overall, I think it is put Edwards in a class of sci-fi filmmakers of this era that only the likes of you know, to some, he's kind of in between Denis Villeneuve and J.J. Abrams, right? He is that blend of uh, popular blockbuster yet deeply thoughtful sci-fi. So I want to hear what you felt about his first two big films before this one. I've only seen Godzilla once. I saw it when it came out in theaters. And I remember leaving the theater. I was, what, 14 years old, so I, I don't know. But um, mm, I, don't, right. I don't... I wasn't a very insightful teenager. Um, but I remember mm. just being like, eh, it was okay. And then over the years, you know, I've seen clips pop up, and I'm like, oh, that was pretty sweet. The Halo jump is pretty sick. Someone posted that trailer that was just pretty much the Halo jump with that horrifying yeah. music behind it. Awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. It's an all-timer. It, yeah. It really is an all-time trailer, for sure. Yeah. Especially, I mean, I'm just imagining watching that in a theater, not knowing there was a new Godzilla movie coming out and just seeing that and just be like, holy shit, that'd be sick. Yeah. So that was like, okay, I was positive on it. 
at best. And then Rogue One was also pretty cool. I really, I did enjoy Rogue One quite a bit when it came out. Um, you know, the Darth Vader shit's fucking amazing. I think Gareth Edwards is a guy who, like, whatever you feel about his movies as a whole, he creates really good moments, regardless of the quality of the movie. The moments are there. I mean, the Darth Vader scene, the Halo jump, there's other stuff in Godzilla, there's other stuff in Rogue One. Like, he's just a really good understander of, like, blockbuster filmmaking. And um, also creating really good, like, ensembles, I think, as well. I mean, I was thinking about Godzilla as well. Elizabeth Olsen, uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Brian Cranston, and uh, I'm sure there's probably some other people in there. Like, those three alone, like weren't like massive at the time brian cranston was just coming off breaking bad but those other two were like i will say that this is 2014 breaking bad ended 2013 this was cranston's first big rip so people saw this and were like oh shit like like he was the quote-unquote star i think that they were pushing so and, and i think that that is sort of why i think that the first act is the highlight of this film except for the set pieces is because you've got one of the great living actors just carrying what is perhaps the most profound, like the most deeply relatable human story where it's, we're fucked. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, Garrett Edwards is like filmography thus far has been like solid. I wouldn't say it like blows me away, but like he's, he's got moments in there that I'm like, I can call back to these franchises and think he's got a moment in there. Like he can distinctify, distinctly place himself in Godzilla and Star Wars, that's mm. crazy. Like that does mm. that doesn't just happen. You got to be talented to do that. Yeah. All right. So now that we've talked about how he's fit himself into existing IP, let's talk about his original film. Cade, you saw it this weekend, so I would love to hear your sort of general thoughts first. The Radiohead needle drop during uh. the like helicopter, whatever you want to call it, scene was. I I felt myself ascend. That shit was crazy. So that was immediately like I'm on a high. But uh, yeah, the whole movie, I was pretty riveted by it. I was surprised because I I heard people before the movie saying this movie's boring. It's like, what? Mm-hmm. Even if you don't fucking resonate with the themes and shit, yeah. like there's That's constantly like, stuff happening. Like I did not feel myself take. bored. Yeah, it's, yeah. Wild take. <laughs> it's crazy because uh, I think what what kind of the strength is even the boring stuff is compelling robots standing around just the way that their bodies are held and the way in which they talk are Mm -hmm. in a genre that is literally defined by building on itself star wars is based on dune which made Mm -hmm. blah 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 and so on and so forth i had never really seen a lot of things in this film so (laughs) the complaint that it's boring to me is everyone could have their own feelings but i think that that's just factually wrong i think that's a weird take yeah um the scene towards the beginning when he's with that woman pulling out a robot out of like a car or whatever and the robot starts like screaming for help i was like oh shit okay this is this is awesome like this is exactly what this movie needs to be and that sets the the tone very early on and i i don't think i've really seen robots humanize this extent i mean we've definitely seen like robots that you need to empathize for over various movies, video games, whatever. But like, this was a new level. They really Mm. feel, they don't feel like humans, but almost kind of like a species, like almost like a pet you want to protect. You're like, Mm, I get you. I empathize with you. You are maybe not us exactly, but you are within our world and we, we should coexist. 
Well, they nail that with the kid basically in that one line where they're going through some kind of checkpoint. I forget the exact line where, but like some someone asks Alfie, what do you want? And it's completely the wrong context. But they're like, uh, she's like, for robots to be free. Yeah. So one thing that I want to point out before I dive into my general thoughts is that one complaint that I've seen and that I largely agree with specifically in the first act is that the script is a little loose and a bit weak. But I think that this is one of the most creative Chekhov's guns I have ever seen. Okay, do you know what that is? Uh, the best guess I have is the Nomad, but... Well, but you know what the term means, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the for those out there who don't know, Chekhov's gun is a screenwriting theory that if you show a gun on the wall, hanging on the wall on Act 1, it must go off by Act 3. And the Chekhov's gun of this film is what you just described, the robot's sentience in its last moments. They lay that foundation throughout the film with the robot, with the soldier who dies, and then they upload his last like minute of consciousness to a sort of third-party body so they could speak to it. And then that culminates in John David Washington's character being able to reunite with Gemma Chance. So mm-hmm. while I do have complaints with the script, I think that that is figuring out a way to check off gun. The emotional resolution is, is high level shit. Yeah. I saw it coming once I started seeing how much they were kind of using this chip or whatever, but I was, I saw it when he said I would kill for just one more yeah, yep, yep, minute. Yep, yep. I'm like, that's well, it. that's uniquely specific. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was like, okay, like I'd like at least, I'd minutes. like at least 10 minutes to get a quick yeah. pump in. You know what I mean? Like what, uh, what are we talking about here? <laughs> exactly. I, I was like, okay, yeah, that's going to come back. But uh, no, it, that that's the beauty of sci-fi is you can take such a big concept and ground it in something very relatable and very human. And I, I love that so much. And I mean, he just he did the Rogue One ending again. You know what mm. I mean? That I was like, oh, they're literally doing the embracing in a explosion thing, which is crazy. Uh, but it works. See, both times. And well, the Rogue One. And again, I've said a bajillion times how much I love that film. Not mm. only do I think it's the best Star Wars thing, it's one of my all time favorites. I do think the romantic beat at the end of that film is a bit weird, even though they don't sure. kiss and thank God. Yeah, they do still imply it. And I do find it a bit strange. Mm. Whereas here, even though I have major, major problems with the sort of clunky emotional exposition of that first act where the, where yeah. he's like looking at photos and saying yeah. I remember this and then like flashbacks of like like that doesn't work for me but ultimately it pays off at the end because like once the fucking uh, the nomad is going down and like JD dub like I know he's dead I'm like oh wait a minute we're about to get this payoff and I know it's gonna fucking work so let me get into my general thoughts and then we will break it down sort of piece by piece the number one thing that i came away from this film feeling is that this is a movie of dualities it has both incredible style and substance but i also think the script is not very strong at parts its world feels deeply unique yet it's also largely a story we've seen before in various sci-fi films i think it's one of john david's best performances of his career i'm also not sure he's very good 
Uh, the scale, <laughs> the scale is massive, which as you touched on, and these are my exact notes. Edwards has always excelled at scale. The Halo jump, the way that the Death Star looks in Rogue One, the way that those uh those like Walker things show up on that beach battle in Rogue One, like they've never looked bigger and scarier, right? So that is something that he really gets. But at the same time, the story is also grounded. It, it, it is a man and young cub story. So I love the way that these things balance both sides of the sci-fi coin. But I think the way that it, it the way that it stands above its peers in that sense is it is asking an extremely important question at a terrible time. And that question in it of itself is dichotomous. Most sci-fi films have long asked. What if AI is absolutely terrifying? And it is. And the creator acknowledges that. But it also asks, what if they're ultimately benevolent? And not only that, but what if they're actually better than us? And that is such a frightening idea because evolution is primally, chemically, culturally, an existential threat to our being that we must, you know, quote unquote, rage against the dying of the light against. But what if that next version of us is actually better? That is both scary yet inspiring, stomach dropping yet heartwarming. And so to contain all of that in an original sci-fi film, I think is what makes Edwards somebody worth keeping an eye on for every film that he does make. Yeah, I really don't have anything to add to that. You pretty summed it up pretty nicely. <laughs> okay, great. All right, so now that we've shared our general thoughts, I want to sort of dive into the nitty gritty of the film. As I said in my review, sci-fi is a genre that builds on itself. And while this film did have a lot of original ideas there is also tons of sci-fi films in the past that it is paying homage to hearkening back to building further on so kate what are some of the sci-fi things that you think gareth edwards were particularly inspired by here blade runner is the obvious one right with uh someone hunting down ai and then also i think the design of that city that they're in uh kind of in the middle of the movie and then I'd add on the sort of the idea of an AI uprising, but yeah. we're in not like in the Terminator world where they're purely villainous, but here it's like, we just want to be loved and be free. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not trying to copy your list here, but like, it, this is a pretty common. No, no, please go list. ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. The, the Blomkamp comparison you have here with Elysium and District 9 is pretty good. I think Blomkamp does a good job of making like sci-fi feel gritty and in our world Mm. he has like a lot Mm. of dirt to those things there's a lot of that in this movie where you know the the robots are cemented into our world via clothing and and having a more grittier look they're not clean and pristine as you might expect in some other things like there is some real tangible texture to to those uh characters um and then, yeah, I'll, I'll let you take the, the rest of these. I, I I think you have a pretty better understanding of, of, of some of these other ones. So, yeah, I mean, the, some of the films that not just me, but a lot of the film fans out there have pointed out is that uh, the design of the AI physicality themselves, the way that they've got a very human face sort of masked over a robotic body reminds me of Ex Machina. As you touched on from our notes, it reminds me of actually both Blade Runner films, whereas the first one mm-hmm. is more focused on like a singular AI. The second mm-hmm. one is more focused on the society of it. Um, and then this is the one that I think is the most sort of contentious and that I've seen it compared to Mandalorian and The Last of Us, wherein 
it's a man and cub story. And I've seen complaints that this is a very like, uh, like I've seen this cited as sort of a negative critique and complaints that it's well-worn to which I'll say no shit. Like man and cub sci-fi is a foundational piece yeah. of the genre in and of itself. Are we going to start to bust Cormac McCarthy's dead balls because he wrote the road? Like, I don't understand. I, I'm really fucking sick of this thing. Cause this has been happening specifically since, the last of us like is when i remember really starting to hear this thing with ellie and joel they're like this is just the road i'm like fuck you this this whole thing this genre has existed since time like began like it is not weird for a bigger character to take on a child and take them through a dangerous journey that is a fucking trope and it is fine and i love the trope and i'm tired of hearing it cited as a criticism (laughs) i'd I'd say i'd say it goes beyond a trope i think it's like a foundational storytelling pillar yeah sure i'll take that yeah like you look at logan i mean how many can we how many can we throw in at this point you know there is an endless list of like grizzled vet young cub we got to survive. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I, I think that taking this film down a peg for that is strange. And then I just want to say that there are obviously like war film vibes of this that we felt in Rogue One as well. Like that scene where there's that battle on the bridge and there are like those suicide That's bomber awesome. robots. That is yeah. saving Private Ryan type <laughs> shit where they're fucking defending the bridge. So it's like, you know, he's pulling from a lot of stuff and, and to do it all uniquely and affordably is is just feet in it of itself. So to that point, let's talk about some of the unique things about this film that we loved as we both touched on the texture of this world. Sort of every little detail feels very thought through and well executed. Although it's obviously very similar to the Death Star, the Nomad felt unique and terrifying. And it, it was just a remarkable idea from him, both in terms of like storytelling and aesthetic, right? That first scene where they raid the beach and that blue beam comes down and just rips the water. You're like, what the? Mm -hmm. This is fucking awesome, you know? I touched on this before, the sort of mannerisms of the robot and the AI, just their body language and their tone of their voice. An offshoot of that is sort of the suicide bomber robot. We talked about the uploading of a dead person's consciousness onto a sort of third party vessel in order to communicate with it in its last moments of being this isn't really unique but it's rare an excellent excellent child performance in which the film would not work without from madeline yuna voiles her first ever role and then finally them actually spending the money well the fact that ant-man 3 costs like two to three times more than this is fucking insane yeah, I mean, they they went around the world and shot on real locations and, and whatnot. I think he said they shot like two things that they just couldn't get a real space for, like on a like a volume type thing, which so be it. I don't know what that actually is. I don't know if that's like space or what, but um, uh, the it shows that I mean, people are going to probably say well the movie's not performing at the box office so we're not going to get movies like this people are responding well to the uh visual aesthetic of this movie i want that to be a lesson that studios can learn and be like okay 
maybe it didn't make the money, but people are pointing out this specific thing is working. What if we continue to utilize this? I'm glad that Deadpool 3 is apparently shooting a lot on location, which is awesome. Like, that's why mm-hmm. there's been a lot of leaks, is because they've been shooting on la- locations. Sean Levy has specifically said that. So that's great. Uh, don't know if it'll look great, but I hope so. Um, so, and, and then the other thing you said about the suicide bomber robots, like, the weight of them is so cool. The sounds their feet make, them running through the smoke. It's just someone who has a vision of of what kind of feeling they want you to have in a scene, right? Of just like, I feel like a palpable tension as I hear, boom, 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 and it's just up rushing through the smoke, and there's nothing you can do about it. And then it runs past them. And I was like, wait, where's it going? And then it's blowing up like the structure behind them and not them. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, this is fucking crazy. It, it's just clear, you know, for as many problems as one might have with the story or the writing or the pacing or whatever it may be, the actual, I think, direction of what's vision. happening in the action the vision. The vision is is very much there and present and is very well executed. All right, so not to be all praise-filled, let's move on to some things that we did not like. As I touched on, the emotional position of the first act, I think that the first 20 minutes are probably the worst, wherein they have this raid, and they have these flashbacks, and they have him looking at photos. And then there's even that scene where, and the character is played by famed country singer Sturgill Simpson. He just shows up to his friend's life and fucks his whole shit up. Wife dead. <laughs> you dead. Life ruined. Like that is that is very and like Sturgill kind of being down with it the whole time. Like, yeah, let's go, John David. Let's go fuck yeah. my shit up. Like, so there are a lot of I don't want to say shortcuts, but problems that come with writing a sci-fi film wherein you have to take leaps at certain points and they chose to take those leaps in the first act being like we don't really have the time to show you uh them being in love so we're just going to flash back the hell out of it and we don't really have time to show you the individual devastation that this war is causing so we're just going to bring in a friend and fuck his life up in like 15 minutes so (laughs) that kind of the thing (laughs) i mean i brought a friend to the screen and i turned to him and i was like imagine your boy shows up and ruins your life in three hours (laughs) that's horrible (laughs) i was confused was this the guy that showed up at his house at the beginning that he beat the shit out of like to stay yes. undercover yeah so i'm like yes why are you so keen to help him i feel like right, man exactly. i get it it's cool you had to do what you gotta do but i don't want any part of this exactly <laughs> exactly and then and then this is both the small and big thing small because they pass by it big because it's sort of the crux of the whole story the explanation of the la nuke being a human coding error in one line of fucking dialogue is wild to me yeah, basically, like Y two K happened. <laughs> That's yeah, basically right. What they're Whoops, sorry. Yeah. yeah what? <laughs> so yeah, uh, I feel like they they could have probably found a better way to textualize and enrich that point. Yeah, I, I've seen some people call this movie racist, uh, and oh, I, I believe, okay. but I do think there's been like a, a general misunderstanding of like uh, the robots did do the nuke. And like, so like they deserve what's coming to them or something like that's how the movie views it. Like there's like a the the robots are bad. They're terrorists, whatever. I don't know. And I think a lot of people have missed this nuke thing being an accident that was then blamed on the robots. And yeah, uh, 
I don't know. And some people have made some allegories to like 9-11, like as you know, like the Twin Towers were bombed and then America used that as a way to go in and bomb countries, mm. which I can definitely mm. see that. Like that is a very like valid read of this movie, I think, intentional or not. Um, I think that's pretty present in the in the text of the movie. Yeah, and I will just say that that sort of um, ties back into my point about this being a film of dualities, wherein they say, like, and I like this, this is a good point. They say that the West was largely, res- or, or, or the West embraced AI until it went wrong. They're like, oh, wait, whoops, fuck this. So yeah. I love the idea of something that we wanted to capitalize for profits turning against us. And now we are at war with our very own, not creation because there's that whole thing and we've skipped over it all. Cause it's the most sort of sci-fi jargony part of this film, the Nirmata character or Nimrata, mm-hmm. how it's mm-hmm. like Gemma Chan's father. And then it's her, all that shit. But the idea of like humanity creating and exploiting something. And then once we fuck it up, we try to put the blame on them and yeah. be like, we got to start a war now. Yeah. I, and I, I, I did kind of laugh. I'm like, this would never happen. Cause I was like, yeah, we, we have a huge problem. Ban it immediately. I'm like, we've had a gun problem for years, not to get too political here, but it's just like, we can't get rid of the guns. Right. And meanwhile, <laughs> yeah, we've somehow found a way to banish all the, AI to the far east. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We got him completely off land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to I've got I've got two more points here that I want to touch on. Thoughts on John David Washington and how you feel about him as a movie star. Now, as I've said, I thought that the clunkiness of the first act certainly doesn't help him, but I don't think he particularly sells the romance between him and Chan at all even though i do like the reunion between the pair at the end that's more of a structural idea than an actual execution of performance that i like but i will say his farewell with alfie which is the true emotional climax of the film he fucking nailed he absolutely nailed it so I am conflicted as hell about him because I think his physicality is movie star quality, but I just don't know if he has enough consistent. He comes off, no pun intended, robotic as fuck at times. But then in the third act, when they need him to, he sells it. So I guess I'm trying to ask, do you think that this has helped or not helped his case as an A-list star? I really didn't have that many problems with him in this movie. I've seen a lot of other people say they did not really think he's very good in this movie. Um, how, what did you feel about him in Tenet? Same way? Yeah, same way. But that that is a emotionless film until sure. probably yeah. the final like 15 minutes where guys are being dudes hard as fuck. Yeah, so right. like, yeah, so <laughs> I don't. So it's like it's hard for me to blame him for being stilted and gray in a stilted and gray film. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, I think he's got like some charisma, but like you said, I don't. Maybe it's just a chemistry thing between him and Gemma Chan. I don't know. Like it, it, it is odd. Like, um, I don't totally buy their relationship as much. Like you said, it's more of a thematic thing than it is the actual characters and their their performances. Yep. Um, I will say he is cool with a gun. He's really cool with a gun, and he's like yeah. his dad in that sense. I think like Denzel looks cool with a gun. His yeah. child looks cool with a gun. I mean, that moment on the bridge. I don't know. He does this thing with the pistol where he, I, you can't see me right now, but I'm like holding my my arms real close to my chest and like doing a gun finger with like 
to the side. Yeah, you got it. You got it. You got it. Yeah, there it is. Uh, that, that's exactly what he does. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. And just like I, I've said already, that radio head needle drop, he looks cool as fucking that. And he's, he's good at being like tactical. So he's got yep. like the body and like the the movement down. But there is something in those more emotional moments that I think he is um lacking. But I, I don't think it's yep. bad. I don't think it hurts his chances. Um, I just want to see that improved upon in future movies. All right, and then finally, I just want to talk about the third act and the ending. I've got a sort of a plot point that I want to touch on, and I've got sort of a general theme point that I want to touch on. The plot point being, Kate, how did you feel about the execution of them sneaking on the Nomad, wherein they sort of like hijack a commercial flight? Like, I think the idea of a commercial flight to a space station is very cool. And the idea of them stealing that flight is very cool. But did you buy the manner in which that they did it in this world? I, I agree with you with the that element. Like Ad Astra had something similar where they go to the moon. Yes. And like it's just like yes. going to fucking, you know, the keys. Then, the, yeah, like or, or like a mall. There's like a subway. <laughs> yeah. <and shit>. yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I was like, they know they're on that plane because they try to stop it. It's like why does the nomad not just point a cannon at them and shoot them out of the fucking sky? Like there's no way I buy that that plane is reaching the nomad in the way that does. I get that Alfie has total control of the actual plane, but I'm like the nomad itself could easily take that thing down. I will say though, that once they get there, I did like the way that they sort of pulled off the takedown. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think once they're on there, it's it's fine. But I'm like, there's no way this plane should be able to make it there without getting absolutely annihilated. Right. And then my final point, and anybody who has tuned into this podcast for a long time knows that I am a, an absolute sucker for romantic sci-fi. And I think that that is ultimately why the third act is my favorite. And what ties this all together is not only do they have the genuinely emotional goodbye between John David and Alfie, which I think might be the best scene of the film, you know, them being separated by half a foot of glass, but it might as well have been a world. And for this guy who had not necessarily given up on AI, but had been given every reason to want revenge on it, to him come full circle and sort of understand not only the potential of AI as a whole, but the humanity in this individual one, I thought was extremely moving. Right. Not only is the sort of reunion with Gemma Chan right up my alley, that is the sci-fi shit I am constantly seeking. I was crying. I uh, there is no <laughs> doubt about it. That is the stuff that hits me right in the core where you're able to take these huge grandiose ideas and make it feel as though you understand them to a emotional soulful level. That is why I'm in this game. But then finally the final shot of Alfie being on earth seeing the um nomad come down and actually vaguely reminded me of Steve Rogers watching Captain Marvel fuck up Thanos's ship and just watching <laughs> sure. it tumble in the skyline and just the outpouring of emotion that consumes her face combined with the background noise of sort of celebration of the victory of war. So for me, the third act is not only makes this film great, not only what makes Edwards great, but what makes this genre great. 
Yeah, I, I do think there's some clunkiness in getting Gemma Chan's character to John David Washington with Alfie having to like mm. drag her like Avatar's corpse basically to right to yeah. John. I do think it's cool that they set that up earlier in the movie by him seeing like those women on the train that look exactly like her and stuff. I thought that was neat. Right. But I was like, a lot of the problems they face in the third act probably could have been avoided by not trying to uh get her body to john david washington's character you know what i mean like had she not spent the time doing that they both probably could have gotten off the nomad before it exploded yeah um right, right. so it's like a little clunky but those are do, those leaf it's, things it's that nitpicky. you just gotta yeah t- yeah it's yeah. like whatever uh it's still the moment is like ah, yeah I'm, I'm in i'm a sucker for this shit i'm in uh so, so it, it oh. still works guess the point that I want to conclude on is what do you think that this means going forward for films like this, for the original sci-fi genre? As you touched on, it doesn't look like it's going to be a box office win, but it looks both like critically and general fan-y. Like, I would love to hear what my dad thinks, you know? Sure. And it seems to be connecting across those bases. It also doesn't help that it came out during the strike. There was nobody to promote this film i asked disney to speak to gareth they did not i haven't really seen him talk anywhere so i think that that has impacted how well it might have performed but that's not me saying that oh had there been no strike it would have been a hundred million dollar right. film yeah i don't buy that at all but i do think that that is a factor so i think that and then there's the whole point of this disney film being like hey ai it's not so bad right and yeah. we didn't even touch on that we didn't even yeah. touch on that but that but 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 the fact is that this was gareth's film so i'm not gonna yeah. get all conspiratorial about that they didn't but, have to make the movie you know like right. fox didn't have to put their money behind it they did so i guess how does this make me feel about the future of probably the genre that i love most and the genre that i'm trying to personally write a script for next I think it's both a win and a loss loss in terms of like the way that this would have 100% worked is if it crushed it. That would have been a no questions asked. If it made bread, we would have gotten hundreds more of these. But I do think when you look at even like, you know, distant cousin of this being like Jordan Peele's Nope, I do think we're moving in the right direction in terms of getting back to these type of films, especially when someone like Gareth can prove I can make this for sub 90 million. Yeah, this could be a movie that makes its money back through like, you know, streaming and stuff like that. I would hope, you know, with making it a f- it's not a low budget movie at all, but it's it's like mid-tier budget. Um and uh, I think that's great. And uh yeah, I don't know. I I think you're right though with like Nope is not the same movie, but like it is someone who was had a vision, an original sci-fi script and was given the money to go make it. And I don't think that was even like that big of a box office hit either, but like right, and makes it look and makes it look better than what it cost. Yeah, exactly. And I I like seeing that studios are still willing to do this in the age of franchises and streaming franchises and all that stuff. People are still going and trying to make these. We just need people to go see them. Um, you know, I, I can't ask everyone to go see something if it doesn't, you know, sound like it's something that's gonna be their cup of tea, but like if you see something that's interesting to you, don't wait for streaming. Go check it out. You know, movies are cheap. 
They're $10, $15 at most to get in. And I was going to say, don't... 10 is being kind, Kate. I don't know about <laughs> what going the to IMAX. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in your fucking cornfield-ass town, but $10, theater has not cost $10 since right, 2005 on the coast. Uh, I understand that, you know, people are their families and stuff like that, but, like, it is something that, you know, if you want to see the change, you have the power to make that happen. This is one of the things that people can control if they go out in mass and do something about it. Um, so if you want to see more original movies, go support them. And uh, I think this is a great example of a movie that you should go see. And, you know, you may not like it, but it's worth uh, always worth, I think, trying something. I, I say that as a picky eater. So maybe I'm a little biased, but at the same time, movies, try them. They're great. <laughs> That's my and message. Like movies are great. <laughs> and then not to just dunk on Ant-Man 3, I guess, because it's on my brain, because that's the last time I saw Kang until Loki season two. It's like, if you're one of those people being like, this Marvel sci-fi stuff is terrible, you have no reason to not go see this film. Because yeah, this I... is the exact inverse of the thing that you're trying to rage against. So if you want to contribute, and we're not trying to preach, and then we are preaching which yeah. sorry um and it's tough for me to sort of back this up because i do go to to a lot of films for free mm-hmm. but i saw oppenheimer twice and mm-hmm. i guess our point is that if you believe in a genre or a certain type of film please go see it so with that said that is going to conclude our review of the creator please follow my brother Cade Onder and all of his great work at comicbook.com. You could find him at Cade underscore Onder. He will be dropping his review of Spider-Man 2 on October 16th on October 6th, October 16th on comicbook.com. We will surely discuss that game when we are allowed to make sure to please follow our uh, usual co-hosts, always friend Brandon Katz at great underscore Katzby and all of his work at Parrot Analytics. And of course, myself at Eric underscore Ital and the podcast at Postgred Pod. Leave us a review if you haven't already. We will be back later this week. We took off a whole eight weeks, but now we're ripping off pods. We'll be back later this week to discuss the season two premiere of Loki and the season one finale of Ahsoka. All right, y'all. Peace.